0: Hello, and welcome to A Health Potacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. A relatively recent but rapidly growing body of research, some published in Health Affairs, shows various health disparities between sexual and gender minority populations and the population as a whole. These disparities include insurance coverage, access to care, and health outcomes. As data regarding this population grows, we're able to answer questions that historically were just out of reach. What are recent trends in coverage and access for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people? That is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Andrew Bolibol, a PhD candidate in the health policy program at Harvard University. Mr. Bolibol and co-authors published a paper in the June 2023 issue of Health Affairs examining trends in health insurance coverage among LGBT adults. They found a closing gap in health insurance among LGBT adults relative to non-LGBT adults, but disparities in access persist. We'll discuss these findings in more detail in today's episode. Mr. Bolibol, welcome to the program. Hello, and thank you for having me. Thanks for joining me today. Uh, So your paper sort of situates itself in, as I said at the outset, a a growing but still relatively small body of research that's been conducted on the health status and coverage rates of of LGBT adults. Um, Maybe if you could just start by giving our audience a little bit more of the context than I was able to do. What? have we known historically about health insurance coverage rates, access to care, health outcomes for
1: uh, LGBT folks? So this really dates back um, quite a while, and it goes back to the Employee Retirement Income Security Act in the 70s that was passed. Um, And under that act, the um, federal government took more control over how they regulated health insurance and how um, states were able to regulate it themselves. So we have, in the way we provide health insurance, most people in the United States get it through their employer, Um, and unsurprisingly, a large percentage of those employers are what they call self-insured, and what self-insured means is essentially that the employer is on the hook for all all claims and health risk of their employees. So when an employer is self-insured, the way that they are regulated is through the federal government, so state regulations do not apply to these employers. Um, and in additionally to that, um, in the 90s, with the pass of the Defense of Marriage Act, it defined marriage as between a man and a woman, so excluding same-sex couples and not re- legally recognizing uh, same-sex marriages. And so this had the inadvertent effect of blocking access for health insurance for a large swath of people um, in same-sex relationships because they cannot get it through their spouse or their partner. And this was driving the big, this really was what drove the the gap in what we see um, in the early 2000s in terms of healthcare coverage between LGBT adults and non-LGBT adults. And it wasn't really until um, the 2010s, later 2010s, that we uh, had a few policy changes that really impacted how LGBT folks were able to gain coverage.
0: So what you're describing is in a in a world where most people get coverage through employment or dependence of someone who's employed, in a, in a same-sex couple that's not recognized legally and not recognized by the employer, um, one member of that couple, if they're not working, is not going to be able to get coverage through the other, whereas in a same-sex marriage, uh, that would be available to them, and that creates a a... a a missed opportunity to provide coverage that would exist in other circumstances. So that's sort of the, the, the history of why coverage rates were lower for LGBT folks. Is, is, is that a reasonable telling of the story?
1: Yeah that's that's correct. And, and additionally, um, in terms of public insurance programs, so programs like Medicaid, there before Medicaid expansion, which I'll, I'll talk about in a bit, people, um, especially LGBT adults, didn't often have dependents, so that's how they would normally qualify for Medicaid, um, not based on just income alone. So they were any, unable to access um, public insurance programs as well, which also drove a part of this disparity.
0: Right. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up. So we have sort of both public programs and private uh, coverage with these disparities, if you will, built into them. Can you say a little bit about how that translated then into access
1: or health outcome disparities as well? So in in terms of access to care, obviously, the the kind of I guess, basic answer is that it it, it definitely dampens access to care. Um, so if you think about how people who are uninsured are able to or were able to access care, it's usually through charity care, um, federally qualified health centers. And in those in and of themselves present barriers to access already. When people are faced with actually paying the full cost of care, they typically don't. Uh, we know that uninsured folks typically pay about up to maybe 40% of the care that they receive as uncompensated care. So it really drives disparities in terms of accessing just normal preventive services like mental health services, prescription drugs, um, your annual checkup. Those are things that are often foregone because of this issue of not having health insurance um, and providers not willing to take individuals without insurance, which then translates to worse health outcomes for LGBT folk because of this gap in coverage.
0: So in your study, you start looking at changes in coverage over a recent period, and um, maybe you can simultaneously say what the periods are, and you can explain what the policy environment was in each of those three periods and how
1: they differ. Yeah, so we divided it into three um, different time periods, and we call it the pre-ACA, which is 2013, early ACA, which was 2014 to 2017, excuse me, 2016, and then the late ACA, which was 2017 to 2019. Um, And we did this for a few reasons. So 2013 was before the major provisions of the Affordable Care Act, or the ACA, uh, came into effect. It was also the start of the beginning of recognition um, at the federal level of same-sex marriages. In 2013, um, this was before legalization of same-sex marriage across the country. It was United States v. Windsor. Um, And in that case, the Supreme Court overturned Section 3 of DOMA, and DOMA being the Defense of Marriage Act. And what that did was that it allowed states to legally Recognize um, same-sex couples as married, so it legalized marriage in those states that had passed ordinances or laws that legalized same-sex marriage. However, it didn't overturn that case did not overturn section two of DOMA, which meant that states that did not legally recognize same-sex marriage did not have to recognize same-sex marriages in other states that did allow it. So for example, if I got married a same-sex couple in a same-sex marriage in Massachusetts, and then I moved to Alabama. Alabama would not have to recognize my marriage because they had not passed anything related to same-sex marriage, or in some cases explicitly defined uh, marriage as between a man and a woman. Um, So that was the beginning of this kind of change in terms of uh, the the biggest barrier to access, which was getting uh, coverage through a spouse who was working and got their coverage through their employer. And in the the middle period or the, the early ACA period, 2014, 2016 that encompasses the, um, one, the, the Medicaid expansions and the marketplaces of the Affordable Care Act, which extended access to not just LGBT Americans, but a whole swath of Americans, especially through Medicaid expansion. And some other work has shown that Medicaid expansion has significant effects for LGBT coverage um, in states that did expand it versus states that did not expand it. And also during this time um obergefell v Hodges, which is the probably more famous case, um, which was when the Supreme Court ruled uh, legalization of same sex marriage across the United States, so all states, whether they had laws on the books recognizing or not, had to recognize same sex marriages and allow same sex marriages across all those states I and mean, in this time period we won- we chose as like the the kind of the beginning of the end of um barriers to, uh, at least through to marriage, which is a way to access health insurance for, for many folks. And it also started this, um, would allow us to see like a start of a different trend in coverage for these folks. And then we chose our last period, 2017 to 2019, because we figured that that was probably the, the period we would see the most um, impact, if there was any impact from both the ACA and the Supreme Court ruling where we could see changes in coverage and access, if there were any changes to see, and how those rulings may have implications for coverage.
0: So this is a really dynamic policy period that you're looking at. And what's striking to me, as you describe it, is there are changes that would affect private coverage, and there are changes that would affect public coverage. And between the two of those, you could definitely expect to see some something happening. Um, and that's exactly uh, what you looked at. I want to now get to the punchline and find out what it is you observed. But uh, I'm going to say we'll do that after we take a short break and we'll have that conversation then. And we're back. I'm speaking with Andrew Bolable about health insurance coverage and access to care among LGBT adults in the period 2013 to 2019. Before the break, we heard about the dynamic policy environment during that period. So let's jump straight to the findings. What did you find about changes in health insurance coverage uh, during this period that uh, may or may not line up with all the policy shifts we saw happening?
1: So quite shockingly at least it was it was shocking to me is that over this time period from the beginning for two thousand and thirteen, where we noticed a very large gap in health insurance coverage for lgbt folk relative to non lgbt folk, is that that gap completely closed by the end of our study period so the, by the end of of two thousand and nineteen um and even the uh, insurance coverage for lgbt folk passed surpassed um, that of non lgbt folk during this time period, which is is kind of incredible given that it was a relatively short time period, and they saw in the LGBT community saw huge gains in health insurance coverage, um, which was driven particularly by private insurance coverage as opposed to um, public insurance in, at least in our, our data well,
0: that's a pretty big finding, and I think it's it's notable that uh, it is a short time relative to how long the pre-existing patterns had been in place. Um, you did have some interesting subgroup findings, um, and I wonder if you could describe some of those, because uh, one in particular certainly jumps out, and I think it would be of great interest to our listeners.
1: Yeah, so uh, very much related to the uh, Aweregefell ruling and the Defense of Marriage Act is um, the fact that partnered LGBT folks saw the largest gains um, in health insurance coverage relative to non-partnered LGBT folk um and more so than their their non-lgbt um partnered counterparts um and that's I, perhaps not surprising given that same sex was legalized same sex marriage was legalized in 2015 and that opened a door for many people to gain access through their partner um, when through, through marriage. And so I think that was probably one of the most powerful findings is that the Supreme court ruling probably had large implications for, uh, the gains in coverage for LGBT folk, especially partnered LGBT folk.
0: Yeah. Now, of course this wasn't an experiment, so we can't say a caused B, but the, the direction and timing is sure indicative of, of this making a a real difference. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, But then you also looked at access to care and barriers to access. What did you find there?
1: So in terms of of access to care um, and barriers to access, there were, as there was in in health insurance coverage, large gaps in in terms of access and utilization of care. So things like going to or having a primary care physician or provider, um, having a usual source of care, prescription drugs, mental health, um, and the cost issues associated with that. And so over the time period, we saw those gaps between LGBT folk and non-LGBT folk close. Um, and so there was less issues of utilization and access. But unfortunately, in the last um, or towards the end, there's still, the gaps still persist. So LGBT folks still have a relatively more difficult time accessing and utilizing healthcare, despite the fact that they have higher rates of insurance coverage now. So that seems a
0: bit of a, a policy conundrum. You'd think that the primary tool we use to assure access to care is insurance. You close the gap in the one, but it doesn't close
1: it in the other. Uh, what what do we think is going on here? There's, there's, there's several explanations that, that could be plausible. And again, like you referenced earlier, this was an uh, experimental setup. So it was, it, we can only kind of uh, hypothesize what what's driving this. Um, and so there's... Uh, What we thought is um, two things, and one of those is if LGBT folk in the marketplace with the Affordable Care Act marketplace are differentially choosing um, high deductible health plans, then that would in and of itself present a a cost issue. Um, And it's not out of the ordinary to think that. I think given the wide swath of literature that we know about how um, individuals behave when they're faced with a very complex health insurance contract is they don't behave the way theory might predict, or neoclassical theory might predict. So it's it's not necessarily surprising that in, in that case, they would face cost issues for a high deductible health plan. And another one that's really important to point out, and we don't have necessarily, we weren't able to dive into this, but I think other literature has looked at it, is the fact that discrimination and bias drive barriers to care. Um, those in and of themselves can prevent a lot of people from seeking care. We know from other identities, um, that race concordance with providers matters a lot for people seeking medical care. So that could also be the case um, for LGBT folk and why they they face these still a- uh, issues in accessing and utilizing care.
0: Right. So we think, okay, if we provide, give someone an insurance card, it will uh, close these gaps. And it, there's no question it's helpful, but as you note, it doesn't address all of the potential barriers, whether it has to do with financial barriers that remain when you are insured, or or other barriers to access. Um, so this leads me to wonder, sort of, what comes next. You noted, and I was, uh, uh, I echoed the the rapidity with which we close this uh, coverage gap. My g- guess is that there's no similarly rapid. Uh, mechanism that we can employ to close some of the gaps in in access and, and ultimately in health outcomes. But as you think about what was accomplished during this period, I wonder where it leads you in terms of thinking about additional policies that might make a difference here.
1: There's two parts to this question. I think a lot more research needs to be done causally identifying why LGBT folk actually face these, these barriers to access. I gave a couple hypotheses, but we don't really know um, why there's such difficulties for folks in obtaining care. We can only um, hypothesize. And so I think that is a really fruitful one, a, r- a fruitful area for research that really needs to be done. And that really has, is tied to, to policy implications. I think that in the states, or rather the, what we kind of know, is that the states that have significant protections for LGBT folk the um, states that you, you you might assume, LGBT folk fare better in terms of health outcomes and access to health. So things like um, banning religious exemption laws matter a lot for health insurance coverage, um, and anti discrimination laws in public assistance matters a lot in terms of how LGBT folk can access care or or even get healthcare coverage. Um, and so I think those two things are are really important and will continue to be important. I think this is. Um, for better or worse, at the front of uh, the news in in a lot of areas is uh, health access, especially for transgender individuals in the United States. Um, and the LGBT community isn't isn't a monolith. We're all very different, and have different and unique health needs. And I think because of that, uh, lumping them all together like we we did um, isn't necessarily indicative of what how the community is moving as a whole. Some might fare better than others. Um, and so I think that for policy reasons, that means that we really need to focus on what are the unique needs of each type of individual within this community and how we can better meet those needs. Um, and I think this is a conversation not just happening about with uh, LGBT healthcare, but also across many different identities, um, such as race and ethnicity.
0: So I'm really glad you brought the conversation around to this point, and maybe it's worth telling our audience why you did group LGBT together and you stop at the T in this study. Because I I think there is often a tendency in these kinds of large data set uh, quantitative analyses to to find a result and think of the group that is studied as one, as opposed to many individuals with variety. Uh, So can you just say a little bit more about sort of the data uh, limitations and and why why this group and and why not differentiating within it
1: yeah and, and thank you for allowing me to speak on this um so it was really just a limitation of the data the way that um, the health reform monitoring survey which is what we the data that we used the way they asked the question is um, they collapsed it into one and it's lesbian gay or uh, bisexual or transgender individuals so that's why the other parts of the acronym like the QIA are not theirs because they don't actually ask questions related to those identities. So we can't necessarily say anything that um, an individual answering that might be intersex or asexual or any other type of of identity that normally we associate with the LGBT community. Um, And further, they didn't uh, disaggregate the LGBT question. So it wasn't this percentage identified as lesbian, this percentage identified as gay, so on and so forth. So we just had to make that, um, make, make the best with what we had, which was just the, the question relating to any type of identity related to LGBT. Um, and that's, and that's, uh, how we proceeded. But I think again, going back to to that point is, is not necessarily optimal, um, because there is such heterogeneity within the community and that has different policy implications.
0: Right. And we do a lot of this in our work where, you know, you, you, you study what you can with what you have and it, Opens up the door to other questions that you may need different methods or different data sets to try to answer. Well, as we come to a close, uh, if I may, I'd like to ask you, uh, you are um, a PhD candidate, I wonder if you can say a little bit uh, tied to this work. um, And some of the questions we were just talking about, uh, where is your own research
1: agenda headed? So I've actually pivoted a little bit. Um, I'm very interested in the intersection of health and crime. Um, I was doing a little bit work of work on our randomized controlled trial of, um, of healthcare provision within the jails in the United States, and I think there is um, there's an element of kind of the this this paper and this research in that, um, as in the general population, there are significant disparities within our carceral system. Um, particularly for LGBT folk, but also uh, racial and ethnic minorities. And so that's kind of the future where I see my the direction of my research going. I think in terms of the area of LGBTQ health uh, health coverage and health outcomes, it is a really small area, but it's growing. And I think there's a lot of great work being done in that area. Um, I still want to continue somewhat in that vein, but I've pivoted a bit in just in terms of my interest in, um, probably the most vulnerable population in the United States, which is um, justice-involved individuals.
0: Well, uh, Mr. Bolivar, thank you for explaining that and talking about your uh, upcoming priorities. I agree with you about the vulnerability of that population. Uh, it's nice to see expanding knowledge about this uh, population as well, I um, and we are happy at health fairs to be part of the outlet for that uh, Uh, increased knowledge that we have. Uh, Thank you for being my guest today on Health Podacy. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about Health Podacy.